Good morning. Kids are so cute, aren't they? Talking about the men who missed Christmas, individuals who were in a position to welcome Christ into the world, but they missed it. One reason or another, we looked at the king last week, and this week we look at the high priest. The Jewish high priest was the only person on the planet who was welcomed and admitted into the presence of God. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies to the very place where God himself agreed to dwell for a period of time to meet with a human being. Contrary to what is often said, the high priest didn't go in with a rope around his waist or ankle. That's what legend says, that he had to go in with a rope in case something untoward happened while he was in there and he had to be dragged back out. The reason why that doesn't work very well is that the curtain was at least as thick as a handbreadth. Say it took about 300 priests to put it up. Very huge veil. And so it would have been difficult to pull him back out if anything happened, but that is strictly legend. He couldn't have been dragged out for that reason. This privilege of the high priest to enter into the most holy place had become empty and meaningless, literally. The temple had become like an abandoned home, like a car without an engine. In the 6th century B.C., the Ark of the Covenant had been removed from the Jerusalem temple when Israel had been conquered by the Babylonians. In the centuries that followed then, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest dutifully donned his ceremonial garb and entered into an abandoned place, an empty place. And in that time frame, in the centuries prior to Christ's arrival, the high priest had become not so much a holy man as a political appointee. King Herod, whom we introduced as the first man to miss Christmas, is the one who appointed Joazar ben Boethus, the Jewish high priest, when Jesus was born. And Joazar, the high priest, is the second man to miss Christmas. Let's try to figure out why. Our government is split into Democrats and Republicans. And if you're unaware, these two parties don't line up on how they understand and apply the Constitution. Some of you might be aware of that. Ancient Israel in Jesus' day had Sadducees and Pharisees. These two parties disagreed on how to understand the Old Testament and how to apply the Old Testament rituals. Israel was a theocracy in which God was the governor and religious law was the law of the land. So the Pharisees and Sadducees disagreeing about the Bible, how to understand and apply it, is similar to disagreeing on how to understand and apply the democracy, the Constitution in a democracy. The high priest was a member of the sect of the Sadducees. But again, the other political party was the Pharisees. And they were more powerful at the time. Uh, Pharisees and Sadducees initially split because of beliefs. It was said, and here's what the quote was and how they interpreted it. Be not like the servants who serve their masters for the sake of the wages. 
but be rather like those who serve without the thought of receiving wages. When the Sadducees applied this, they said, okay, if we're not supposed to think about wages, then the whole idea of an afterlife, of rewards on the other side, don't make much sense. And they believed that rewards like an afterlife or resurrection from the dead were not warranted, made faith too reward-driven. So they didn't believe in that stuff. Since the Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife, they were sad, you see. Okay. It appears that the Sadducees were part of an aristocracy that lived a fat life at the cost of the nation. Quite unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees mingled with the rich, collaborated with Roman rulers. They lived in splendor and drank and ate out of golden utensils. But they did that not because necessarily they were arrogant, which they very well could have been, because as they claimed, the Pharisees led a hard life on earth and yet would have nothing in the world to come. And so they figured, well, since there's nothing going to meet us on the far side of the grave, you might as well live it up a little bit now. Paul exploited, the Apostle Paul exploited the fact that the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling body, we have Congress, House of Representatives, and the executive branch. Back in those days, they had the Sanhedrin, what the 70-person ruling council, composed of both Pharisees who believed in an afterlife and Sadducees who didn't. Paul exploited this on one occasion when he was on trial. Here's what he said. I'll read from Acts 23. Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Uh-oh. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. What we read in Acts 23 goes on. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously, we find nothing wrong with this man. They said, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to us? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force, bring him into the barracks. The differences between Pharisees and Sadducees led to bitter rivalries that make our political debates look tame. Sadducees introduced changes into the temple ritual that the Pharisees didn't think very kindly of, and it led to bitter strife and what we read, extremely bloody fights, and sometimes mass slaughter. That's how, that's how difficult these, these disagreements became. So, how come Joazar missed Christmas? A couple things that we might infer so far. He really wasn't a spiritually devout person. He was more a political appointee. Lived a fairly affluent life. Enjoyed his life tried to be politically astute. He didn't believe in an afterlife. And he was busy living it up on earth. There might be, in fact, there are some other reasons. Let's look at them. Take your, there's a sheet in your worship folder. 
And we're going to read some verses, and we'll try to find out some other reasons why he missed Christmas. Look what it says in Luke chapter 5, verse 36. Jesus is speaking here. Let me read. You might follow along on your sheet. He said, No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. point is easy to understand. You put new wine in old skins, it ferments, expands, breaks the skins. So the idea of what the problem is is not difficult, but applying it. How does this apply to Jesus and wine and wineskins? What is the wine and what are the skins? I think when we understand the answer to that question, it will help us understand a little bit better why the high priest missed Christmas. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, 11 through 12. The writer of this letter says, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical priesthood was the priesthood put into place when God gave the covenant to Moses on Mount Sinai. He understood those from the tribe of Levi there to serve as priests. And and so it goes, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? And what it's saying is that God put the Levites in charge, but he always planned to put another high priest in charge, one who was not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. So what we find, it wasn't God's intention to put that priesthood in place forever. It was his intent to remove that priesthood and put another priesthood in its place. Now what we find here, when you change the priest, you must also change the law. Look what it says in verse 12. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. The priesthood and the law go together. The tribe of Levi and the Levites, they were the priests for the old covenant. So, if you change the priesthood from the Levites to Jesus, you also have to change the law from old covenant law to new covenant law. When there's a change of priesthood, there must be a change of the law. You can't get Jesus as high priest functioning to help us believe and understand the old covenant. That's like putting, well, it's mixing up wine and wineskins, isn't it? And it doesn't do a service to either one of them. The wine is old covenant law. The skins are old covenant priests. When there's a change in the priesthood, there must be a change in the law. Jesus came to be the new high priest. He represents new skins. He came to introduce the new covenant. 
The new covenant represents new wine. This is why he came. And this is why when we celebrate communion, the night before we think about what Jesus said the night before he died, when he was talking about this is my body, and he said this is the blood of the new covenant. To believe that Jesus represents God, but to believe that God still blesses those who keep the Ten Commandments and curses those who don't, is to fail to put new wine and new skins. Jesus comes to bring a new covenant, unlike the covenant that God made with Moses from Mount Sinai. New priest, new law. That's how it works with God. New wine. Jesus represents new skin. The new covenant represents new wine. What it says in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 12. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, that which was given to Moses and the Levitical priests. Jesus' ministry is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. Literally, this says them. And I'm going to call this into question. In the New International Version, it says God found fault with the people. In the original text in Greek, the word is not people. The word is them. God found fault with them. And the writers of this Bible assume that the them means the people. And I think what we're going to find, God didn't find fault with the people. He found fault with the promises. Because the old covenant promises weren't supposed to be eternal. There was going to be a new priest, and the new priest would bring new, new promises. That's the way it worked. New priest, new covenant, new covenant, new promises. Um, so God found fault with them and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant. And then it goes in verse 10 to describe the new covenant. And this is what it says. Look at this. Listen to this. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. I included a sheet in here with an article from Base for Grace. I'm just going to read that. This gets tricky. Understanding, Mike, what's all this about? Covenants, old covenant, new covenant, writing, I don't understand. What let's do, I'm going to read this and you can follow along or just listen and let's see if this clears up anything. From the Base for Grace, God issued a new covenant. What was wrong with the old one? 
But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator, the superior to the old one, and it is found on better promise. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with, says the people, but what we really know, the original word literally said, God found fault with them. And we'll figure out what the them was. God thought fault with them and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. No one improved. In the case of the covenant God made with the world, the description fits. A covenant is a treaty or agreement. Vulnerable nations seeking protection entered into covenants with powerful nations that could protect them. Once ratified, covenant documents detailed the fall, detailing the following were given to each party. These are the parts of the covenant. The parties entering into the agreement, the history of the relationship between the parties, the promises or commitments made by the party offering protection, the dominant king was called the suzerain. So the one who is affording protection, these covenants would stipulate the suzerain saying, this is what I will do for you. And the stipulations or commandments accepted by the party seeking protection. The party offering protection was called the suzerain. The party accepting protection was called the vassal. They were the weaker nation. And what they agreed to do so the suzerain says, okay, you are members of a less powerful kingdom than the one I rule. So here's what's going to happen. You're concerned about that nation over there. You're concerned that they will attack you. You'll remember that I have, being the suzerain, have protected you before. So here's the deal. I am going to come to your aid when that nation attacks you, and I will defend you. Being the suzerain, these are my commitments to you. Now, what you will do is you will pay me, and these are the stipulations, you will pay me $10,000, or maybe it's probably worth more than that, 20, 30,000, whatever, a year. So my commitments, I'll protect you. The stipulations are you're going to pay me for that. Okay? The penalties for not complying with the stipulations of the commandment. Um, the Old Covenant is the covenant established between God and the Israelites from Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments are the stipulations that the Israelites agreed to honor in exchange for God's protection. The blessings are the rewards for compliance. The curses are the punishments for not complying. Does that make sense? God makes promises of protection. The Ten Commandments are the stipulations. You will do these things, and I will bless you. You don't do these things, and there will be curses. The Israelites promised to obey the covenant demand. God responded with covenant blessings when they did so, and with covenant curses when they did not. God kept his part of the agreement. He always 
fulfills his covenant promises. God never makes a covenant promise that he does not fulfill. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, you will find God fulfilling his covenant promises. Because they did not remain faithful to his covenant, God promised to make a new covenant. This covenant would not be like the covenant he made with the children of Israel. It would be superior. It would be founded on better promises. God replaced the old covenant in order to offer a covenant with new improved promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people in the original language of the Bible. The words the people are not found. The Greek text simply says God found fault with them. The New International Version of the Bible translated them as the people. This is not the point. It is not the point. God is not talking about people in the context. He is talking about promises. The passage says that God found fault with the promises, not with the people. This is why he founded the new covenant on better promises. The new covenant is superior because it contains new promises. I will put my law in their minds and will write it on their hearts. In the first covenant, where did God write his promises? On people's hearts? Remember where he wrote it? Tablets of stone. The new covenant, he doesn't write his laws on tablets of stones. He writes it on tablets of human hearts. It's a better promise says, I will be their God and they will be my people. God promises to ensure responsiveness to his will by inscribing his demands on his children's hearts rather than on tablets of stone. He promises that the new covenant would establish a bond that could not be broken. The new covenant is superior because it contains no curses. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. I want to tell you with that, there's a word here. I want to tell you what the word is. You're going to go out understanding one Greek word. There it is. Say it after me. Helios. This literally says, I will be Helios to their unrighteousness. I will be Helios to their... What does Helios mean? What he's promising, when they are unrighteous, I will be Helios. So here's the new covenant. When we are unrighteous, God will be Helios. You want to understand what Helios means? You know what Helios is like? It means to be cheerful, gracious, favorable, and benevolent. That's what it says. Cheerful, gracious, favorable, benevolent. Something like Santa Claus. What God promises as part of the new covenant I will be cheerful, gracious, favorable, and benevolent when they are unrighteous. That's a little bit stronger than I will forgive their sins, isn't it? I will be non-reactive to their unrighteousness. And here's what God is saying. Again, this is difficult to believe, but it's what the new covenant says. Let's imagine I'm God. And I'm cheerful, gracious, favorable, and benevolent. And you do that thing that you do when you're alone, when no one's around. The thing you're ashamed of. And you look up at the 
God saying, you look at his face, and his face is unchanged. Even when you did that thing, and you've been told that God goes, I am disgusted with you, disappointed with you. You know the problem with thinking like that? The wrong wine. The wrong wine. The new wine is the new covenant. God says, I will be Helios to their unrighteousness. What if you believe that? It would change the way you relate to God. You would want a relationship with him. You would actually start to feel warm when you thought about him. You might actually find yourself <clears throat> loving him. Wouldn't that be something? God promises that wickedness and sins will no longer bring punishment and curses. God promises to remember their sins no more. He is not talking about divine amnesia. Let me see. What was that you did again? Try to think about it. Yeah, remind me. It's not, it's not what it's saying. But God is assuring us that sin will not prompt him to impose covenant curses. Children of God need not fear God's retribution and judgment. Curses are not included in the new covenant. It really is true. You will not find curses in the new covenant. In fact, you won't find ifs in the new covenant. You will find God saying, I will, I will, I will. There's no if, there's no condition. And you say, well, Mike, what is so, what are we supposed to do? You know what we're supposed to do with this? We're supposed to believe it. We're supposed to believe it. And when we believe it, you know what it does? It changes our heart. It's the way it's supposed to work. New wine, new skins, new deal. New relationship. We mix it up. We think that God's probably half old covenant and half new. And when we mix it up, what do we end up doing? What do you do if you mix it up? You know what that's doing? Putting new wine in old skins and it messes up both of them. It ends up spilling out all over the place. Jesus is a new priest. He inaugurates a new covenant. Let's keep the new and the new goes on, it can be confusing to read the Bible. God seems to change. In the first half of the Bible, he is harsh and punitive. In the second half, Jesus reveals God to be gentle and fatherly. Why don't you listen carefully? If you get anything out of this morning, this is it. Remember one thing out of this morning. Naturally, you remember how cute those kids were. Cheeky ears and stuff like that. Mike God, that comment was a little bit out of control, but you lure it in to pull that one off. Why don't you remember this? These differences, however, do not represent a change in God. They, re they reflect a change in the covenant he operates by. Like I said, from beginning to end, God keeps his covenant promises. When Jesus comes, the covenant changes. 
So the reason why God seems to be different, it's not because God is different. It's because the covenant is different. He's a new priest. He inaugurates a new covenant. One in which he says, I will be Helios to their unrighteousnesses and will remember their sins no more. That's why the new covenant changes. The New Testament changes. It is essential, finishing up, to understand that God has established a new covenant. He no longer commands us to keep his commandments in order to earn his blessings and avoid his curses. God sent his son so that the fear of his judgment could be replaced by the assurance of his love. God does not change in the Bible. You say it with me? God does not change in the Bible. Say it one more time. His covenant does. His covenant does. That's what changes. We're going to sing a closing song in front of Why did the high priest miss Christmas? He presided over a temple that God no longer lived in. It says in John 1.14, The Word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. The Word made its dwelling is the word for, you might really translate this way. The Word became flesh and templed among us, or tabernacled among us. It's the same word used to describe the temple. You know what happened? God moved out of the temple and into His Son and into those who believe in His Son. In so doing, He placed new wine into new skins. Hope you can stick around. Have some refreshments with us in the back. I ask you to give us eyes to see. Character, the new skins, you, Jesus, and the new wine that you came to bring to being. You help us to understand the new covenant commitment, promises that you make. Help us to believe them so that we would become like you, Jesus. In whose name we pray.